Good morning. Do you remember last week, there were about 300 people here in the evening, and we were all loving Jesus and praising God together? That was really fun. And uh, boy, I hope we get to do that again. And uh, it's good to be here on the front end of the Advent season um, to rest in the gospel, be reminded of Christ, and uh, maybe we'll learn something new. Maybe we'll learn something new this Advent season. Uh, I'm not going to be preaching through this uh, series alone. Um, next week, Frank Uly, the guy who typically is humoring us on the piano, um, is going to be preaching, and then I'll come back, and then after that, one of our elders, Pat Curran, is going to be preaching, and then we'll close out the Advent season um, with the, uh, the Christ candle on, uh, on Christmas Eve. So we look forward to all of that. Amen? Amen. Amen. Gifts resemble promises. Gifts resemble promises. There's a sense of anticipation with gift giving that is very similar to when we make a promise, is there not? We have intentionality when we buy gifts for people. We know what they need, we know what they like. And there's this revelation of the enjoyment, the fulfillment of that gift giving when the anticipation ends and the gift is opened. It's kind of like that with a promise, isn't it? We make the promise, and if the promise is not kept, there's really no fulfillment. But when the fulfillment of the promise takes place, all of the anticipation between the time the promise was given and the moment that the promise is fulfilled... We have the anticipation, and then we have the fulfillment, and it reminds us of a gift. That's kind of what this first Sunday of Advent is like. It's the rehearsing of the promise that is given. It's the rehearsing of the prophecy of the coming of Christ, the advent of Jesus Christ. And in so doing, it begins this season of anticipation, There's the coming of Christ. There's Christmas morning that's coming, but we have to begin at the beginning, before Christ was on the planet, before Mary and Joseph, before the prophets even. We actually go all the way back to Genesis this Advent season, and we look at the very first promise, what I'm calling the greatest promise of all, in Genesis 3, 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You'll want to have your Bibles open to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to work our way into Genesis chapter 3, but you'll want to have your Bible open. The references that I bring up that aren't in Genesis, I'm going to put up on the screen. But the stuff that's in Genesis, I want you to see with your own eyes what the Word of God says in regard to his promise of the coming Christ. Prophecies are hard to understand, are they not? Uh, It's not just us. When we look at even Jesus' disciples who walked face to face and spent time, meals together, slept in the same space, spent years together, they struggled with the prophecy of the coming Christ. 
If you remember when there's these two, two disciples that are on the road to Emmaus, Jesus appears to, to them after he's died and rose from the grave. He appears to them and says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, it is not easy to understand. So, please, there is no high place to look down upon the lowly people who don't understand the prophecy of Christ. It's complicated. It's not about intellectual acuity. We can't just be smart enough to get it. It's about having spiritual eyes to see. It is God who gives the spiritual eyes to see. That said, that said, what has been revealed about Christ, it is ours to behold. It's not speculative. So don't let anybody diminish the prophecy of Christ by saying, well, that's just your perspective. No, what has been revealed to us is ours to behold. There's a scripture that speaks to that. Look at it. It's Deuteronomy 29, 29. It says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Now, what God has given us, we get to proclaim boldly. God has made much of his decree. God has made much of his plan known to us. And it is not speculation as to the coming of the Christ. You may have heard of this mountaintop kind of illustration about, the, about understanding how prophecy works. It's hard for us to understand because we see and we hear the words that are spoken about Christ. And then we look in scriptures and we see the coming of the newborn king, the, the coming of Christ. But yet for those who are hearing the prophecy for the first time, there's this great expanse between the peak of one mountain and the peak of another mountain with much time and valley, as it were, in between. We can see the words given and we can see the completion, but it's very hard for us to understand prophecy because we don't see the whole story. Hebrews one, as we've already looked at, is a bit of a summary of this. It says in, in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1, it says, Long ago and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But what? But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. But there's nothing in that single sentence or two sentences that describes the entirety of the time span and how God is working in and through people for hundreds and hundreds of years. So that's complicated for us, is it not? So when it comes to Genesis 3.15, this great promise, it means something to some of us. It means a whole lot to some of us, and it means very little to others. It has to do with what we know about the promise. 
It has to do with what we know about the whole story. And before we look forward to the fulfillment of the promise, we must look back to the intentionality of God. What was he purposing? Why was this promise made? To look at the greatest promise of God, we must see the greatest problem of men. We must begin with the problem of sin. I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry. Because without an understanding of where sin plays a part in the, in the story of God, the promise and the fulfillment has lesser glory. But where we see with clarity the fall of man, and where we see with clarity our culpability in sinful man, We don't appreciate and glorify and rejoice in the coming of our Savior. So that's where we begin. We begin in scene one. There's going to be five scenes in total. In scene one, we we see where God establishes a relationship with Adam. God establishes a role for Adam within his creation. The problem of sin happens within the context of a story, and Adam is right there at the beginning of the story. It's a narrative that has taken place, and in reality, we are a part as well of this narrative. It's not a fairy tale. It's not an allegory. It's not speculation. It's a true story, and Adam is right there at the beginning. God establishes a role for him. And he establishes a relationship that is unique with Adam. And we begin in Genesis 2, verses 8 and 9. If you look in your scriptures, I'll read. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I want to point out something, and then I'm going to move quickly past it, but I want you to remember it for the future. Every tree that was in the garden was pleasing for sight and for food. Every single tree was pleasing to the sight of man. And it was good for food. God creates this garden a bit separate from the rest of creation. You get this sense that there's a a cordoned off space that doesn't fit only with all of of the rest of creation. It, It is a separate place. You get this sense that it's a sacred space. And God places man within this sacred space And it's called the Garden of Eden. There's something special about what's happening within the garden in scene one. Moving on, Genesis 2, verses 15 to 25. The Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you shall surely eat of every tree of the garden. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat, you shall surely die. A couple of observations about scene one. 
God places Adam within a sacred space. God has set apart the garden to further his story. He is going to say something and do something with Adam that is unique for all of history to look back at. He has established a relationship with Adam that is special, and he is taking this special place to carry out this story that he's in the midst of. He gave him a job to do. He told him he was to work and to keep the garden. These, as was noted by Ty a few weeks back, these are the same words that are used of the Aaronic priesthood. The priests were to guard and to keep the temple and the tabernacle. Numbers chapter 18, 1 to 3. So the Lord said to Aaron, you and your sons and your father's house, and you shall bear iniquity connected with the sanctuary, and you and your sons and you shall bear iniquity connected with your priesthood. And with you bring your brothers also, the tribe of Levi, the tribe of your father, and they may join you and minister to you while you and your sons and you are before the tent of the testimony. They shall keep guard over you and over the whole tent, but shall not come near to the vessels of the sanctuary or the altar, lest they or you die. Now that sounds like a pretty sacred space, does it not? It's so important that if there's anything that's foreign that's not supposed to be there, the priests are actually supposed to cleanse and keep and guard that tabernacle temple space. They're the keepers and the guardians of God's sacred space. These are the same words that are used of Adam in the garden. garden the, Adam is to keep and to work. He's to guard. He's to protect the sacred garden space. Moving on in the story, God forms a covenant bond with Adam. God forms a special relationship with Adam. There's, there's nobody else in play yet, just God and Adam. And he doesn't hold himself aloof from Adam. He actually establishes relationship with Adam and he describes for him what it's supposed to look like. He gives him stipulations, rules. He requires absolute and personal obedience to himself. Absolute and personal obedience. It's not some rule book that's that's posted on the wall. It's not a distant thing. It is personal. It has connection to the relationship between God and himself. Adam is expected to be 100% obedient to God. There were consequences that were communicated. God was not holding out. There were no surprises in the garden. In the event that you do not obey, what happens? shall die. They will be death. It's not stated, but it is easily assumed. If you do not eat the apple, what happens? If you do not eat of the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what will happen? Have you ever asked yourself that question? 
think that's why the tree of life was there. I think I could answer that question. I think God's intention all along was to move Adam on towards an eschatological glory in relationship with himself, meaning that there is a time and a place where God would be in personal relationship with Adam with no sin and no turmoil and no no serpent tempting And that if he would have succeeded and he would have obeyed 100%, that at some point in time, God would have ushered him to the tree of life. And he would have eaten and moved on towards glory. That's not the way the story went. But it doesn't mean that the tree of life doesn't still exist for God's people. Because you know where the tree of life is going to be? The tree of life is found in the paradise of God for those who overcome. Look in Revelation. The the, the tree of life still exists and all of God's people will eat from the tree of life. But they will not eat from the tree of life in this condition. Nor was Adam allowed to eat from the tree of life after he sinned. God initiates this, this bond relationship with, Ad, with, with Adam. And his expectation is that he would obey him and that he would walk in relationship with, with him for all of his days. We get a sense that this is going somewhere. I don't think that, that life was intended to be lived in the garden for all of eternity. So when you think to yourself, oh, I just wish I could go back to the garden. Could I just remind you who is in the garden with Adam at this time? I don't think that was God's intention. But I do think there was a test taking place. I do think that there was something expected of Adam as a representative of the human race that he absolutely failed He absolutely failed in. When we asked ourselves that question, what would have happened if Adam had eaten the tree of life? If he had eaten the tree of life in his fallen state, forever he would remain unchanged and unredeemable. So God actually protected him and ushered them outside of the garden that he wouldn't eat of the tree of life in his fallen state, waiting for a day, waiting for a day, when the promised one would come, making it possible for all of us, one day, those who have conquered, those who have overcome, those who have trusted in Christ, get to eat of the tree of life one day in the paradise of God. That's scene one. Scene two and scene three move kind of quickly. Scene two, God establishes Adam's partnership with Eve. Verses chapter two and verse 18 in Genesis says, says that God, the Lord God, said, it is not good for man to be alone. And all the men say, amen. I will make a helper fit for him. Making Adam's need and desire evident to him 
he, uh, God has Adam name all of the animals. And Adam realizes how alone he really is. And God gives him a helper. God makes Eve. Genesis 1 and verse 28 says, God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God gives them work to do together that is glorious. They are to rule and they are to reign over God's creation and they are to do it together. One can only assume that Adam and Eve really get after it, filling the earth Ruling and reigning over God's creation? But as scripture records, it does not seem to be all that long before everything goes south. Enter scene three. Scene three is a satanic personal and verbal attack on God's kingdom. I wish I could say it more emphatically than that. But we ought to feel the disdain for the enemy in a moment like this. The enemy is the one who is attacking Eve and Adam and God's kingdom. Does he want to take down Adam and Eve? Absolutely. But is he trying to get at the king of kings and the Lord of lords and raise himself to some level of godly or God status that he could never attain? Absolutely. This is an a frontal, a full frontal attack on the kingdom of God. And it comes through a conversation with Eve. Chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman... Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. She got that right. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. She got that right. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. God never said that. But the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The attack that, God, that Satan makes upon God's kingdom is a verbal, personal attack on God's word. God has made himself plain. He has made his relationship clear between Adam and Eve and himself. And Satan distorts what God has said. In an intimidating voice, I can hear Satan, did God really say? The distortion that God said to eat of any tree, not just this one. Satan said, did God say you can eat of any tree? The implication here is any tree that you want to. You're saying that that God is saying you can't eat of absolutely every tree in the garden? And the reality is, you can. You get to eat of every tree that is beautiful to sight and good to taste. You just can't eat this one tree. The woman's response, somehow she 
has something going on in her mind. Yeah, I, we're, we're, not supposed to, we're not supposed to eat that tree. We can eat all of these trees, but I'm not, we're not even supposed to touch that tree. You can, you can hear the seed of fallen humanity in her voice. Not even supposed to touch it. That's not what God said. God said, don't eat it. 100% obedience. Not more, not less. Satan Satan ascribes false motives to God in this conversation. He plants a seed of longing for more than humanity inside of Eve. More than the intimate bond relationship with God that he's established. A longing to even be wise like God. Scene four. Scene four is the fall of man. This is the epic moment. This is the thing that makes Christmas so phenomenal to us. Let's walk through it. Chapter 3 and verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Eve here is desiring what God wanted her to avoid. Sin is not yet in full bloom, but it is still present. The tree that God had told Adam to not eat looked good to her all of a sudden. Even though it is described in appearance like every other tree, there were beautiful trees and good trees to eat. This one has her eye. This one has her heart. It was a special tree. This tree could change me on the inside. This tree could provide something for me that no other tree could provide. It's not just feeding my hunger pains. There's something in her heart that she longs for, aside from her relationship with the Lord God. The serpent had twisted God's word and set the temptation trap for Eve, and she literally took the bait, and she sinned against the Lord God. The bigger issue is this. Where is Adam while all this is going on? The covenant bond son of God. The one who walked with God before Eve was even created. Where was Adam while this was all going on? He was right there with her. He was right there with her. Now you have to ask yourself this question. What should Adam have done in that moment? What should Adam have done when when he heard the serpent talking to his wife? What should Adam have done when, when she reached up and grabbed the fruit 
before it was even pulled off the tree. What should Adam have done after she pulled it off the tree and moved it towards her mouth? What should, what should Adam have done? Adam, as God's representative prophet in this holy place, in this sacred place, he should have spoke like all the prophets of God speak. He should have told her the truth. Eve, Eve, that serpent is talking. Doesn't that seem odd to you? <laughs> what he's saying is twisting what our father has told us about that tree. What he's saying is manipulating you to do something that you should never do. You are my bride and I love you. You are safe and secure and we've got this whole garden to eat from. You don't need that tree. That's what a prophet speaks on behalf of God. He was a priest. He was a priest representing all of us, representing his wife, representing his future family before God. What would a priest do who's supposed to guard and protect God's sacred space when he sees something from the outside come in and defile God's space? He puts on his biggest boot and he stomps Satan in the head. That's what Adam was supposed to do. When he entered God's space, he should have felt the weight of his priestly status and said, I will keep the garden. I will guard the garden. And he didn't. He didn't. Adam, as a king in this realm, he was to rule over all creation. He was to rule over everything that God made. Did God make that serpent? Yes. He, was, he should have ruled over that serpent in such a way that banished him from the garden. It said, get away, this space is sacred. God has given me a task of dominion and rule over this space. But Adam liked the idea of his wife leading him. He liked the sound of the serpent's voice. It was soothing. It was much easier to just passively watch it happen instead of acting on behalf of his God in that sacred space. A much-needed pause. A much-needed pause to feel the weight of that situation, of that moment on our hearts. This has devastating effect not only for Adam and his wife, but all of his posterity. Everyone that comes after Adam is now affected by Adam's disobedience of his father. 
There is a solidarity, there is a union, there is a connection, a personal connection between Adam and all of his descendants. God used Adam as a representative of all humanity. And now his disobedience falls to every person that comes in the line of Adam and Eve. That's us. As the first human, he represents all of humanity. Our first prophet, priest, and king to represent mankind failed. And he fell. Where Adam fails to obey, feel it. You got to feel it. Where Adam fails to obey, we reap the results. And the sons and daughters of Adam are born under sin, the sin of Adam. We are all born in sin. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 and 22 says this, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Friends, does that feel unfair? Have you ever felt that way when you come to this this doctrine of, of original sin? Do you ever ask yourself the question and entertain the question, that just doesn't feel fair to me? I have. I, I wasn't in the garden. I, I wasn't the one who did that. There's a couple of very simple answers to that question. The first one is this. You and I have sinned just like Adam. You and I have sinned just like Adam. And if you and I were there you would have sinned just like Adam. The third answer to that question is this. The same process, now think, put on your spiritual ears, Spirit of God, help us. The same process that imputes Adam's sin to you is also the same process that imputes Christ's righteousness to those who believe. The imputation, that means God attributing Adam's sin to all of us, is the same way because of Christ and his sacrifice on the cross on your behalf, It's the same way by faith he attributes the righteousness of Jesus to your account. So when you ask that question, realize that you you would never ask that question of receiving the righteousness of Christ, would you? You wouldn't think to yourself, "Well, well, I don't deserve that, so Jesus, God, please withhold the righteousness of Jesus from me. We wouldn't do that. 
Romans 5, 18 and 19 says it this way. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners, that's all of us. So by one man's obedience, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. And we all say, amen. The story continues. As every good father does when he sees his children caught in sin, God doesn't hold himself at a distance from his kids. It's as bad as it can get, you guys. It is absolutely as bad as it could ever get. There is one man and one woman. There's one bond, one covenant between this man and this woman, and they break it. It can't get any worse. And God doesn't hold himself aloof and say, what a bad problem you've gotten yourself into. God moves towards his kids. Men, take note. Take note what God does. Moms, take note what God does. When our children are suffering, when our children are caught in sin, what does God do? He moves towards his children. Scene five. Holy God comes in justice and mercy. Chapter 3 and verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. I want you to hear maybe for the first time this phrase a bit differently. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. I think in a romantic way, some of us might think to ourselves, God is taking a nice gentle stroll. And there's a couple of cracks of sticks that take place and maybe they see him off in the distance and there is a, a whistle coming out of his mouth because there is a happiness and a joy coming out of the Lord God. I don't think this is the picture of God that they hear in the garden. I don't know. My sanctified imagination says this. God is coming in judgment. And when God comes in judgment, God is not whistling a tune. God is not coming in the cool of the day singing and skipping. It's more like, it's more like you hear thunderous cracking of massive oak trees as the wind of God comes rushing through the garden and they are scared for their life. Why? The covenant bond has been broken. And they have sinned against the Lord. 
And this serpent, this scumball, this dust eater is in his garden and he's coming in judgment on the serpent and on his kids. Why? The covenant's been broken and the bond has been breached. This is what sin does. Sin breaks the covenant bond. It breaches the relationship. Where God and men were once on the same side, friends in loving covenant bond, now they have taken up the cause of Satan. And they are at enmity with God. They are standing on the side of God's enemy opposed to God, disobeying their father. They listened to him and obeyed him instead of the Lord God. It's not just that I sin, but I do. I do. It's because of Adam that this world is in sin and stands in a status of rebellion against God. This is what makes us cry. We need a Savior. I need a Savior. Say it with me. We need a Savior. This is the setting of the first prophetic promise. The first and greatest promise, the first and greatest gift given to us is the promise of a coming Messiah. God had every reason to take Adam and Eve to the woodshed, but in the grand scheme of things, think about it. He said if they disobeyed, they would die, and die they did, absolutely. But physically, no, they didn't die. God is not done with the story yet. There already is a sense of mercy of God's judgment being withheld. But for the serpent, for Satan, God pronounces his death sentence in this moment. We all ought to cheer a bit in our souls that God has already determined his end. And it happens right here right at the beginning in Genesis 3. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the beauty. Here's the beauty of Genesis 3.15. The first thing is this. This is God's first act of mercy on display. This is the very, the very first moment where, where God needs to display mercy, lest everybody be destroyed and everything be lost. But he doesn't. There was no need for grace up to this point. There's no need for mercy. There's no need for forgiveness up until this point. This moment is a picture of God's first act of mercy on display. The second thing we notice that is beautiful about this promise, 
there is the reversal, the instantaneous reversal of enmity. See, God's first restorative act in the plan of redemption is placing enmity between the woman and the serpent. Because what's the state that she's in now? Enmity means there's a hatred, there's a disdain, there's a distance from. At at this point in time, she's actually standing on the same side as the serpent. She believed him. She actually followed his direction. She disobeyed God. And what God does in this moment is he reverses the enmity. I'm going to put enmity between the woman and the serpent. This is a gracious, a gracious and merciful act of God. A third thing we see about this great gift is the promise of another Adam. Though Adam failed in his representative role, one of the woman's offspring, one of the woman's offspring, another Adam is going to come. There is going to be another human. There's going to be another representative that's going to come. And he is going to be 100% perfectly obedient where the one Adam, the first Adam failed, this Adam will stomp on the head of the serpent. It's not going to be without a cost. The imagery here is clear. When a conqueror stands on the head of his enemy, who's the winner? Who's the conqueror? It is the one stomping on their head. But it's, the imagery here is that there's going to be a bruise. There is going to be a pain. There is going to be a suffering that takes place to this conquering king. This is none other than, none other than a picture of our suffering servant, Jesus Christ, who goes to the cross and he dies on behalf of all those who will believe. The promise of the destruction of Satan by a suffering servant. So, friends, when we hear, when we hear things in scripture like this, Genesis 22, 17 to 18, I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. When we hear promises that come from God like that, he is just furthering the initial promise that he's given in Genesis three fifteen. When we hear the prophet Isaiah speak of a coming savior, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is giving. It's another moment pointing back to that garden situation and saying there's another Adam, a son will be given. Isaiah 53, 5 and 6, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. We ought to hear in our heads, Genesis 3.15, the bruise that is on his heel. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
and we look back to that moment in the garden and we realize our representative failed. And that iniquity falls on each and every one of us. We need a savior. And then we hear the Apostle Luke. We hear the Apostle Luke in the book of Acts looking back at the Savior. He says this to the people of Israel. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The story is not an accident, and it is not speculative. When the apostles are looking back, they actually see all that took place and all that is recorded in Scripture, and they say that is the definite plan of God. That's what God ordained. This moment for us as a body, as we rehearse the sin that we have been in, the sin that causes that break in the covenant bond between us and our Lord, we also get to rehearse and rejoice in the provision of a Savior. That's what this Advent season is about. And at the beginning of the Advent season, we get to celebrate and be reminded of the blood and the body of Jesus Christ given for us. Be reminded of the grace of God. 